think the fundamentalist version of evangelism is let's let's change government let's have presidents that are in charge that can yep. shape the society but i'm looking at the lives of everyday young people gen x's who didn't care less about politics but what they really cared about was relationships and i thought their perceived needs for real relationships with each other was outweighed by their need for a relationship with jesus Welcome everyone back to the Shock Resorber podcast. It is excellent to have you along with you are listening or watching us. Um, thank you for joining us and thank you to Stu who's here on the panel with us. How are you? I'm good, thanks Joel. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> excellent. Tim is not joining us today, unfortunately. Uh, he's having a day off, is that yeah, right? He's having a day off, yes. Um, very well earned rest. Yeah, I, I agree very much so. Uh, it's great. Uh, I've been really enjoying the dynamic that Tim has been adding, so I'm going to miss him today. Yeah, me too. I think Tim's terrific. Yeah, absolutely. And But having, having said that, I did get a haircut yesterday, so I'm ready to go for this podcast because I am excited about we are, what we're going to talk about. And I'm also I excited well. about your reaction i want to hear lots of stories because we're going to be talking about the 1990s which is a very um prolific time for you it's a great decade yeah <laughs> yeah um but as always we'd like to start with a story or a cultural artifact and, yes and as always i enjoy the uh different stories and artifacts that you bring what have you got today i think you've got like a combination of the two yes well well i was really impressed with andy stevens uh story on an earlier podcast when he was talking a bit about the 90s and i thought what could be a sort of similar sort of story? Uh, you're not trying to try and outdo him, are you? One-up Andy Stevens? No, not at all, not at all. But um, no, there's no way I could one-up that story. That if was you a crazy heard, story. I, right? I don't know what episode it was on for people who haven't heard it, but uh, it was... Um, probably back of about five or six episodes. Oh, it was significant. The dude was rock climbing, nearly died. Late at night? Late at night, crazy. Yeah. So it's not nothing like that. But it did inspire me for today's uh, cultural artifact because we're looking at the 90s and we're talking about cultural change from the 80s to the 90s. We're talking about Gen X coming into its own. Um, the <coughs> excuse me, one of the one of the archetypal um, cultural phenomenons of the 90s was skateboarding. Yes. So uh, just in case you're not real familiar with the sport of skateboarding, it, it basically in its modern form kind of originates from a place called Dogtown and a bunch of guys that called themselves the Z-Boys in mm -hmm. California in the uh, early 1970s. But then the sport just uh, continued to um, mature I suppose in the 80s and then into the 90s. But in the 90s it just took off. It was massive and it became um, really big, so much so, for example, that skate clothing and style kind of almost took over mm. all the other different styles. I, I mean, many of us in the Sutherland Shire and the southern suburbs of Sydney had been surfers for a long time, and we also skate, a lot of surfers skate, but surfing style kind of determined skating style, but in the 90s, skate clothing, skate shoes, uh, skate style kind of took over surfing even in our area which was a big thing so for example um part of the style of skating in the 90s was wearing cargo pants i don't know if anybody's familiar with the 90s but really baggy cargo pants and i don't think i saw anybody wearing jeans for 10 years in the wow. southern shire so i did hear rumors in the 90s that levi's were about to go out of business <laughs> because of skating so yeah it was a big phenomenon anyway to show you uh, a little bit of um Pop cultural. Oh yeah, this history. is why I've got I've got some artifacts here for you. This is why people need to be uh, watching us on YouTube. I think for yes, this one, for the listeners, I'm now holding up a skateboard, which is actually a modern skateboard, but it's uh, this is Braden Wall skateboard, but it's actually uh, a replica, I suppose, or or 
inspired. Yeah, inspired it's, by it's an actually 80s board. an eighties board. Yeah. Yep. So this is an eighties deck. It's uh, you can maybe we could describe it for the listeners, Joel. It's sure. A wider board. Uh, yeah. A wider. <laughs> I'm not more not, colourful. Yeah. Uh, what? Else? Oh, it's only got the one kick at the back. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. One kick instead of two kicks. I if really you don't know what kicks are. You'll find out in a minute a I, bit more. I really but don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, I'll get the microphone. That's all right. The kick is this thing at the back here, you see. The so bit that kind of kicks up at the yeah, back. Yeah, so big chunky wheels. Yep. And this board was synonymous with the 1980 skate scene and would have been ridden in in drained uh, pools all over the world. <laughs> right, yep. um, which was where people used to first mm. start skating bowls. They used to hang around in California apparently looking for a pool in someone's backyard that didn't have any water in it and then they'd skate in it. Yep. Now we're moving so on to a, a 90s version. Uh, I've got a a 90s style skateboard here Mm -hmm. now. As you said, there's a double kick Mm -hmm. and this is also known as a trick board. Mm -hmm. And it's narrower, the wheels are harder, smaller. And uh, the idea of this is that you can... You can do tricks on it a lot easier, yeah. and you can ride bowls and and more synonymous with like kick flips and three sixty all that sort of flips yeah. and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. So that's our artifact for today, so, and it demonstrates the difference between the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties. So oh, really? So, so the, the second board is a nineteen nineties board, and the first board is a nineteen eighties board. Right. So and so this is a time where you are really coming into your own, I suppose, as a person as well. Like because you're you're in your early twenties in the nineties, is that right? Yeah. So I was a teenager in the eighties. And I'm two years younger than Kurt Cobain, who was lead singer of Nirvana. So yep. that kind of gives maybe some of our listeners and viewers a bit of an idea. Uh, I was 20 in 1988. So I was 22, 23 when Nirvana hit, which um, Kirk would have been 25, something like that. Yeah. Um, and so when grunge music hit, grunge music was sort of the musical style of particularly the mid 90s early mid 90s and it was a huge transition from 80s rock and roll it was massive i was uh, i'm i'm glad that you mentioned being a 20 something because i i found this um an excerpt from a time magazine article from 1990 came Mm -hmm. out in july 1990 and they were trying to capture what was going on with uh, that generation yep. that was emerging. And time was, first of all, their struggle, whoever was writing the article was struggling to actually come up with a term, you know, we've got baby boomers and all yes. that kind of thing. So he tried to label, they tried to label the demographic the new petulance, which mm. when I said that to you prior to the, <laughs> prior so to recording. <laughs> the new is, petulance. Just anyway. imagine um, us calling ourselves that. Exactly. But I mean, that would have been uh, probably a way of selling out was putting a label on yourself at that That's time. That's a good point. Uh, yes. I thought I could read this excerpt and see what your reaction would be. So Perfect. we've got to remember this is at the beginning of the 90s. So we'll see, see if it, that changes as we go through the podcast today. Yep. So it says, the 20-something generation is balking at work, marriage, and baby boomer values. Why are today's young adults so sceptical? They have trouble making decisions. They would rather hike in the Himalayas than climb a corporate ladder. They have a few heroes, not anthems, and no styles to call their own. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is as short as one zap of a TV dial. They hate yuppies, hippies, and... You know and the zap of those TV dials. <laughs> yeah, they hate yuppies. That modern technology. <laughs> They hate yuppies, hippies, and druggies. They postpone and druggies. That's what it says. Oh, okay. And then they postpone marriage because they dread divorce. They sneer at Range Rovers, Rolexes, and red suspenders. <laughs> what they hold dear are family life, local <laughs> activism, national parks, penny loafers, national parks, penny loafers, and mountain bikes. What's a penny loafer? That's um a top of shoe, I think. Oh, okay. Must and be they American. Pos- and then the final sentence is: They possess only a hazy sense of their own identity, but a monumental 
preoccupation with all the problems that the preceding generation will leave them to fix. There is a whole podcast in that. <laughs> well, that we're starting a podcast. Yes. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, What's your reaction? Wow. Is that how you felt at the time? No. Yeah, that's, which is really interesting because I think that was the point that I found it was they're saying they're trying to capture it, but they really didn't do a great yeah, job. Yeah, it does sound it. like someone who's an older generation looking down on younger people and trying to define them, which mm. um, we're all... Uh, aware of, well, guilty of too, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. Maybe we could unpick some, that by looking at some of the as, some of the aspects you, of that. Okay, but would you rather hike in the Himalayas and climb a corporate ladder? Well, there, <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, see. That's the funny thing about it. Like, I never thought about climbing the Himalayas, but I did despise the idea of climbing the corporate ladder. Right. So it's a bit jingoistic, but there's a bit of truth to it. Why so would, and why wouldn't that, that, that be? De- definitely, you don't. Well. Again, well, I mentioned Kurt Cobain earlier. One of the problems for Kurt was he didn't know how to deal with his own success because he wanted to create music for the sake of creating music and defining himself against the greed of the 80s and the glam bands of the 1980s like Poison and all bands like that um, with all their mullets and their <laughs> frizzy hair and yeah, their the eyeliner. You know, party anthems and mm-hmm. you know just singing about nothing really. Um, there was a, a sense with the grunge movement that came around in the early 90s that there was a questioning of that. It was almost like a a reinvigorated punk movement in a way, like Mm -hmm. the late 70s was a similar kind of vibe. And so there was a an anarchism to that era. And there was, uh, there's a really terrific movie actually that kind of highlights some of that nuance, which is called Into the Wild. If you haven't seen that movie, it comes from a really good book about a young guy who actually was the same age as me. And when he finished um, university, instead of going and working in a bank, he wanted to walk to Alaska. And so he, the whole movie is about him just trying to escape uh, corporate America, I suppose. So there, there, there was a sense in our generation that there was a questioning of the greed is good era of the 1980s. And we wanted to define ourselves against that baby boomer sentimentality of, of that era, I think. So, yeah, I think that there's... Some truth in it, but it's a bit of a funny way of expressing <laughs> yeah. it. Well, I mean, even that greed of the 80s, I thought was interesting when it says they sneer at Range Rovers, Rolexes and red suspenders. Now, as someone who um, has just gone into the watch game, <laughs> I like the idea of Rolexes. Yeah, <laughs> see, that's what's interesting and different about us because, yeah, it would have looked pretentious and mm. try hard. To Especially red suspenders too. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've only seen it in movies, but the whole image comes to my mind of the the Wall Street yeah. stockbroker who's yeah. walking around, you know, flaunting his wealth with his his Range Rover and his fancy watch and his red suspenders. Red suspenders. <laughs> and, yeah, you're talking about, a, you know, the contrast is, again, talking about Kurt Cobain's really helpful, I think, because he would go on stage in his pyjamas with a with a tattered old jumper on and, you know, um, and a flannel. Like the flannelette shirt became the iconic shirt of choice of most people in the early 90s who followed grunge music and that was a rejection of that sort of stuff yeah and that's what i think that obviously it's some of these things that i found are trying to capture is the how much the 90s they were rejecting everything they had Mm. been told to do Mm. i mean the um a book that i found which has just come out by uh, an author called chuck closerman he wrote a book called the 90s and he defines the 90s as being the end the fall of the berlin wall in 1989 up until 9 11 in 2001 yeah i'd agree with that and primarily um inspired by american culture because he's he's american but some of the things that he said about the 90s was really interesting. He said that, like, for example, using um, Seinfeld as, a, like, that that was a defining um, way of uh, of TV being watched in the 90s. If you missed it, you missed it. 
but then if you cared about a, a TV show too much, it wasn't a normal thing to do. So even if you did really care about it, because it was the 90s, you were more likely to claim you didn't even own a television rather than claim that you actually wanted to stop what you were doing and go and watch Seinfeld. Is that the, the, the don't careism thing? Is that something that you really noticed or was it just that was an observation of people at that time? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a, again a, a cultural artefact, isn't it? A comedy show like Seinfeld. There was mm. another TV show called Friends that a lot of people used to watch as well. Um, they're both very, obviously, very American. Mm. Uh, but then again, a lot of the music that was coming out in the 90s was very American. The style was all American. Skateboarding was very American. So Australia was very much now culturally pivoted towards America as much of the world was. Um, I think that there was... There was a sense where, I mean, in Australia, we have a thing called the tall poppy syndrome. Yep. It's almost like the tall poppy syndrome got its own decade. So it was almost like, you know, you didn't want to big note yourself. You didn't want to look like you knew what you're talking about too much. Um, that was my experience anyway of the time. There was there was a cynicism in, in our generation, which has subsequently come to be known as Generation X. Mm. People born from about 1965 to about 1981. People have different definitions, something like that. I was born 1968, so um, yeah, I'd fit into that Generation X. I was a youth leader of an emerging generation that was actually redefining itself against the baby boomers. One of the things that we did used to talk about is the fact that, you know, here's the baby boomer generation who were the hippies of the 1960s who talked about peace and love and dropping out of capitalism, and then they created the 80s, which was <laughs> one of the most materialistic decades ever. Mm. So there was this sense that they, they were kind of sellouts. Mm. Um, and this idea of not wanting to be a sellout was a big thing. Did you, uh, what did you do? Like you're talking about, um, we've spoken before about you, you started um, so, the Soul Revival in the 90s. Mm. Were 1992, you yeah. 1992. So were you really aware of like not wanting to look like a sellout? Well, you're trying to lead, lead young Christians. It's an interesting question because I think when you're part of a generation, you don't think about it too much. Uh, you just yep. actually imbibe what you're part of. And so there was a lot of cultural... Uh, awareness that I've had since as I look back on it as I've thought through some of these things retrospectively but at the time I don't think we thought about it much we just had MTV had just become a big thing in the 80s and that had still really impacted our generation music videos rock and roll was very very powerful Australia had had a very prominent role in the rock and roll scene in the 80s a little less so in the 90s but the there was still this passion that many young people had for rock and roll and, and I mentioned the skateboarding phase, like it was just, it was like people were looking for alternative things. So alternative music became more popular than than mainstream rock and roll. So we would see bands like Poison, Guns N' Roses in my subculture as a, as a say, an 18-year-old. Uh, I'd see those things as super daggy and wasn't into it. Uh, mullet haircuts, which are making a bit of a resurgence at the moment. Yep. We thought that was the height of just super, no, nah, not going to do that. Um we started growing our hair long uh, in the early 90s and the grunge era was all about this sense that we were asking important questions that other generations hadn't asked, which was a bit presumptuous, I think. But but there was a... I mean, the Generation X were the first generation to, to have experienced divorce in a big way mm. as well. So a lot of young people uh, came from uh, families where their mum and dad had got divorced and so we were trying to grapple with that we're also grappling with the fact that consumerism actually didn't give a lot of answers that it promised and actually in the Sutherland Shire when during the 1990s when I was a youth leader 
and youth minister, the 1990s in the Sutherland Shire, uh, we had the highest rates of youth suicide in the whole world. Wow. And yet the Sutherland Shire was a very prosperous, materialistic area. So that that's kind of the idea that there's just not, you just don't find happiness in, in, in popularity. So I think as other artists looked in on our generation, I remember hearing that In Excess had a bit of a crisis because they were a massive pop band in the 1980s and then when grunge came along they went, how do we do this? A lot of hair metal, as we used to call it, just disintegrated within a year or two as soon as grunge came along. It just didn't look substantial anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think for us, uh, the grunge movement, skateboarding, alternative stuff was almost like a victory of the alternative subculture that we were longing for um in, instead of wearing i know this sounds funny now but instead of wearing white sneakers and faded denim jeans we used to opt for cargo pants and doc martin boots and we were tr- in the late 80s we were trying to look for a new direction we we're following bands like the pixies for example who were influential on nirvana and, and um so when nirvana came along a lot of us who would been listening to alternative music during the late 80s were really excited that oh, now this is breaking into the mainstream, what's this going to happen? And I think that's what grunge music did. It sort of broke that alternative subculture into the mainstream. Yeah, that's a really good way of summing up, I think. And then also um, Chuck Closeman said that the 90s life was an adversarial relationship with the unseemliness of trying too hard. So you didn't want to appear like you knew too much. Yeah, people were called tryhards if they tried too hard. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so, I mean, there was other stuff in that quote that he had, but I I think that sort of, for me, summarises some of it. Yeah, it was really good. So um, uh, I thought it'd also be worth just, um, we, we talked about the, the uh, a number of episodes, we've talked about the fundamentalists, evangelicals and modernists. Um, and I thought it, we could uh, do a quick flyover in terms of the mm. what was actually happening in terms of that, especially in the US. And I think we have focused on the US quite a bit because that has been, I mean, during this time that we're covering right now between perhaps the 60s and the 2000s, they've been a very influential uh, they're probably the only superpower around that time. So they well, that's right. I mean, we we had the Cold War before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it was a competition between the USSR, yes, China and America. Yes. But now, uh, after the USSR tore down the, you know, the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall came down, mm. uh, USSR ceased to exist, and mm. now there was Russia rather than USSR. And so it did look like America had reached its zenith, and there was this sense that, wow, this is now this going to be this new era of peace and prosperity it was probably the american decade so when grunge music comes Mm. in when generation x are questioning america and its you know um, power through its financial prosperity it's quite an interesting thing that at the same time as america has pretty much won the cold war generation x are rejecting a lot of the values of the Cold War. And influencing America. a lot of people outside of that as, yeah. as they're doing. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, I mean, in terms of the moral majority we spoke about last episode, that they um, kind of met their downfall towards the end of the 80s mm-hmm. and that, that was shut down. A new kind of emerging area was the Christian Coalition, which became the largest Christian right organisation, which was led by a person called Pat Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually focused less on um, mobilising churches and more on lay people and making connections with other Christian right groups. And, they, and that Pat Robertson, um, uh, who was the president of that organisation, said, we want to see a majority of the Republican Party in the hands of pro-family Christians by 1996. So it was the next moral majority in a sense. So even by 1997, which they considered the peak of the Christian coalition, they had 1.9 million men- members and a budget of $27 million. So uh, again, that's that thing of having a real... Um, 
desire to influence public policy and and politic and in a political way that we have termed and uses George Marsden's definition mm. of being fundamentalist. Mm. It's interesting again that that group met the same kind of downfall as the moral majority once Bill Clinton was re-elected in 1996, and they were actually left dismayed that Clinton had been re-elected even after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Mm. So there was a lot. Um, they didn't. They were left in disarray until George Bush Jr. took over, and he actually spoke of being born again. Um, and he quit alcohol, joined a Bible study. So they obviously rallied around him. With all that going on in terms of, the, they, like, they like to term that the Christian right, where do you see that fitting in within the broader, uh, like we talk about the evangelical line of yep. um, throughout history. How do you mm. see that matching up with that? Yeah, so so a really important issue for us in this season is we're asking the question, whatever happened to evangelism? And what we've been trying to unpack over quite a few episodes is that uh, if you go back and look at the history of the Protestant church as it emerges from the Reformation, you see a splintering of the Protestant church mm. into some uh, some pretty broad categories. And, and it's very complicated and you can't oversimplify it. But for the sake of the podcast, we've summarised some of Protestant history in terms of a line of evangelicals that we've called them that have gone out of the Protestant Reformation. Evangelicals... Uh, called evangelicals because they because they uh, take their authority from scripture and so the word evangelical actually comes from the greek word in the bible euangelion which means good news so the good news protestants are protestants who uh, like luther have got their authority from the word of god in the bible and so that influences their evangelism so the evangelism of protestant evangelicals has been to preach the gospel preach the good news, preach the euangelion. And so they'll continue to preach the the gospel into a changing uh, context around the world. And we've argued in this podcast that there's been a line of evangelicals that have gone through the last 400 years that we've kind of broadly traced and now we're sort of focusing a little bit more as we're coming up to our era. But that that evangelical tradition has influenced the way we evangelize today if we still consider ourselves to be evangelicals. However, we talked about the fact that um, soon after the Reformation and and the evangelicals came along, there were great awakenings and the success of the evangelical evangelism. And by the way, let's make a distinction between evangelical and evangelism. Some Christians get confused by that. Evangelical is Bible-believing Christians. Evangelism is Bible-believing Christians sharing their 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 good news with other people so the evangelism that comes from evangelicals is of a certain flavor it's um it's very as we've talked about it's very much about giving someone an individual choice to become a christian so that you're not just a christian because you're part of a big group like say some uh, catholic traditions might teach that if you get baptized as a catholic you're a christian Mm -hmm. whereas the evangelicals would say well you need to make a personal decision for christ and so that evangelical line has gone through history and as we've said on the podcast you know our church soul revival is is an evangelical church and we still consider ourselves to be that Um, but over time uh, there have been great revivals and, and awakenings of that tradition but at the same time there's also been the ongoing enlightenment and scientific uh, questioning of the supernatural. And we've talked in previous episodes that, that reason and faith have sometimes been in conflict during the history of this uh, timeline. And so some evangelicals actually uh, started to think more about does science actually give us a critique of the Bible? And so 
liberal Christians or modernist Christians, particularly influenced by uh, German theologians in the 1900s, in the 1800s and the 1900s, started to question whether the Bible was that authoritative. And so that has actually caused uh, some liberal Christians to be um, actually more looking for a historical Jesus within the text. You know, is, is the text actually historical or is it actually just a faith-based community work that is promulgating the values of a faith community or did these things actually happen? So that modernist line is now continuing through history after the 1700s, 1800s. But then what we find at the 1900s is a group of evangelicals who are concerned by these modernist liberals um, really want to go back to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, which we'd all say, you know, as evangelicals, we'd all say are really important. Mm. But they actually became more politically active to try and uh, create more of a state-based response to this. So this reached its zenith in 1928 with the Scopes Monkey Trial when some fundamentalists, they called themselves, took uh, some scientists to court to try and stop evolution being taught in schools in America. And so that was a really big public defeat for those fundamentalists. But while those fundamentalists were uh, arguing politically for a Christian worldview, there are still just evangelicals who are continuing just to preach the gospel and not get too politically active. And we talked about people like Joe Packard, John Stott in the 1950s. We talked about Philip Jensen in the 1980s. John Chapman. John Chapman. You know, there are evangelicals um, that are continuing just to preach the gospel. And what I think is interesting in the 1990s is as those groups are forming in America with the uh, the religious right, which some people are calling them evangelicals, but we talked last week about Marsden would classify someone who's a politically active evangelical as a fundamentalist. So evangelicals still hold to the fundamental truths of scripture, but they don't get involved politically to try and change the world politically. They actually want to actually go through that line of history of evangelicals and keep preaching the gospel. And what's really interesting about that in the 1990s is there are still fundamentalists who are getting angry at some of the cultural changes that are taking place. I think they've missed in some cases that Christendom is coming to an end, you know, that era of state and faith being linked. I also think that there's an unawareness of what's happening amongst a lot of young people that a lot of young people are actually rejecting the faith of their parents in larger and larger numbers. Um, that was, for me, really summarised by the REM song Losing My Religion that came out in the early 90s, you know, that there's this idea that our generation is losing its religion. We're not only cynical towards materialism and our parents, we're also, the generation was becoming was searching for some more deeper answers, I think. And there was a sense that the 80s was very plastic and it was very mass-produced and it was very cynical. And we were looking, I think, for something deeper, more community-orientated, something that had deeper relationships. And what was really interesting about that is people were finding that in lots of different places because we were the product of what we now call postmodernism, which is a more eclectic, diverse community. Uh, you know, As I said, there's skaters, there's surfers, there's people who listen to grunge music, there's people who listen to other kinds of music. There was still pop music being produced in the 90s as well, which we, again... In those of us that listen to grunge music really despise that kind of stuff. But I remember, um, what was that girl band from England? Spice Girls. Spice Girls. Yeah, Spice Girls, that sort of stuff was like, yeah, no. <laughs> so that was still being produced. But yeah, this this eclectic generation of lots of different people. And I think while fundamentalists are trying to organise 
a group response to the changes in culture. On the ground, there are evangelicals that are ministering to young people who are who are actually more interested in that evangelical line of history that are just interested in preaching the gospel. And that came to a real head for me in the early 90s because when I was at university, I'd studied political science and I had this real personal struggle thinking to myself, is the way to make the world a better place by being involved in politics or is the way to be involved in making the world a better place by being just a Christian evangelical who preaches the gospel? And it really came to a head for me because I was doing a PhD at University of New South Wales in the early 90s and I was looking at the history of Christian youth ministry actually trying to work out why so many young people were losing their religion as I've experienced through the 80s and more so in the 90s, early 90s. And um, my supervisor actually came to me one day and said, Stuart, you know, you've got this youth group you've started at the same time as your PhD study and the youth group's getting bigger and bigger and taking more and more of your time because by the time, uh, the, you know, 1992, 1993, all of a sudden Soul Revival started to explode and we started with four people but all of a sudden there's heaps of these inquiring Gen Xers that are really enjoying what we're doing and and my PhD supervisor said, well, you've either got to be Mother Teresa or write about Mother Teresa, you can't be both. And I, I, just, I just remember thinking, I'd been reading Marsden about fundamentalism and thinking, no, I just don't feel like that's the future of Christian witness. I think the fundamentalist version of evangelism is let's let's change government. Let's have presidents that are in charge that can shape the society. But I'm looking at the lives of everyday young people, Gen Xers, who didn't care less about politics, but what they really cared about was relationships. And I thought their perceived needs for real relationships with each other was outweighed by their need for a relationship with Jesus. And so I got super convicted that day when my supervisor said, are you going to write about Mother Teresa or be Mother Teresa? I said, it's time to be Mother Teresa. So I just <laughs> I just walked away from my PhD and I walked away from political science and I decided not to be fundamentalist and actually be an evangelical who was preaching the good news. So yeah, that, that, that for me was the journey. that, And that personal story, I hope, kind of, helps to sharpen that difference and that distinguishing character between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Well, was really, um, to, to exactly to that point, uh, just in a little bit of research when I was looking at the mm. Christian right, um, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, seemed to maybe start trying to move at least his organisation kind of away from a little bit away from being so political. So he actually wanted to train future pastors to interpret the culture um and he does say to stand against it which would probably be a little bit more fundamentalist but he said rather than engage so politically we should train the future pastors to interpret the culture mm-hmm. was that your experience as well as you were obviously just started so revival do you feel like you needed to understand the culture at the time or that's because you were in the culture that there wasn't really a need to do that yeah i was young enough to still be part of what yeah, was happening okay. in the culture and i don't think i had to understand it i was just inviting it i think and we just had some some decisions to make around how to have successful solutions to some of the problems we were coming Mm -hmm. up with on the ground in the local church. And so um, I'm really encouraged by the work of Mark Center, the third that we've come back to a number of times. And he wrote a book in the early nineties called the coming revolution of youth ministry. And in that book, he says two interesting things. First of all, he says, we live in a time, we live in times of constant cultural change Mm -hmm rather than just trying to fight against that cultural change, which is what I think fundamentalists can tend to do, we should actually come up with new evangelistic strategies that we can, we can have during that cultural change. So we, we need to, to keep the same 
uh, biblical truths, but continue to work out how to communicate those and contextualize those into each new generation. That's the first thing. And the second thing that I got from him was that during times of cultural change, it's almost always young people and people who work with them that come up with new solutions to do that. And so that was the genesis in the early 90s. That book was the genesis in my thinking for The Shock Absorber, that we need to bring young people and older people together. And originally it was like uh, I was leading a group of 16, 17-year-olds, four or five of them to start off with, and we just thought, let's work as a team and let's be friends with each other. That was our impulse, and it was a very Gen X impulse to be friends with each other. Um, Some people have uh, sort of, you know, because we do do talk about being friends – at Sorrel Vival a lot and some people say why do you use that ecclesial category of friendship rather than family or being a spiritual house or being uh, built into a wall or being a body now we do teach uh, at Sorrel Vival all those ecclesial categories but one thing we recognised in the early 90s which would be interesting to see if our viewers and listeners have ever seen this kind of phenomenon but to actually call ourselves a family almost gave young Gen Xers an excuse not to be in deep relationship with one another because in our context with family breakdown going through uh, our generation um, so so strongly, there was a lot of young people who saw family as something you kind of had to do. And there was a lot of young people that would think, you know, my family is who I get together with at Christmas and I don't even know them really, but I see them once or twice a year. So even though it is a very deep ecclesial category and it still remains so for many people today, and even in that time, family was important to a lot of people. But what I think was a category that was really helpful was we were thinking through how Jesus had said, I no longer call you my servants, but my friends. And you're my friends if you do what I say, which is to love one another. And it's not like we stopped calling ourselves a family, but we did really lean into that teaching of Jesus and say, what does it look like to be friends with Jesus? And what does it look like to then be friends with each other and love one another as Jesus has taught us to love and is teaching us to love? So that idea of friendship really struck a chord with Gen Xers who were looking for meaningful relationships because as we preached about family, they were hearing that as, well, we come to church and we just be pleasant strangers with each other like my family has become to me but my real relationships are with my friends and we mentioned that tv show friends because that was a real big cultural moment in the 90s friendship was really important to a lot of people and particularly for young people who were going through a lot of pain and a lot of questioning i mean i remember talking to one girl at sorrel revival in the early 90s and she said i love nirvana i love listening to pearl jam i just i just loved grunge music and i said oh yeah why do you love grunge music so much and she said when i listen to nirvana i feel alone but i feel alone with everybody else who's alone (laughs) okay and i think that sort of for me captures the zeitgeist of that moment right that's a really interesting way to think about it though that we're all alone together Mm. yeah wow okay um you talked about relationships um and as as you said before that we talk about uh, this season in particular is about evangelism what were the new kind of um ways of coming up with uh, actual ministry to actually deal with these kind of cultural issues because um, I mean one of them is relational ministry which I think is something we should definitely yeah, talk sure, about because sure. that emerged around that time yeah so Mark Center was at the forefront of uh, 
relational youth ministry at the time in the early 90s uh, with other contemporaries like Pete Ward who had written about incarnational ministry which as you'll know from earlier episodes we can trace right back to the 1950s mm-hmm. with um, oh what's his Jim name Rayburn? Again? Jim, Jim Rayburn sorry yeah so Jim Rayburn first started thinking through how important relationships were to people in the second half of the 20th century mm-hmm. and in the 1950s he was super influenced by contemporaries like Billy Graham who were really preaching that evangelical message that you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, Jim Rayburn in the 1950s noticed that because of the advent of high schools, teenagers were now being able to choose their own friends and not just be friends with the people their parents had chosen for them. And so this whole idea about who was in and who was out, uh, how do you form relationships, uh, Jim Rayburn really sort of took a Christian look at that and helped individuals to think through the fact that if they became a Christian, they were having a relationship with Jesus as, as a friend. You know, I think that was one of the earlier takes on that. But one of the things that Jim Rayburn noticed is that a lot of teenagers in the late 50s, 1960s, and this would go on for more youth leaders, was that young people were becoming defined as against their parents. So the baby boomers defined themselves as a generation against their parents. And I suppose Gen X were now, my generation, were defining ourselves against our baby boomer parents and their parents. But um, what, what was really significant there is that Jim Rayburn was seeing that to do ministry to young people was almost like a cross-cultural ministry, that if you were going to step into their cultural world, which was different to the parents' cultural world, you need to have some symbols that they had like wear the same kind of clothes listen to the same kind of music he he and other contemporary uh, incarnational theologians talked about earning the right to be heard before you could preach the gospel to someone you need to start a relationship with them so in the 80s there was this big focus from people like pete ward and mark center about getting into young people's spaces like hanging out at the mall hanging out at um, skate parks and stuff to talk to young people get to know them and when they trusted you then share the gospel with them and that was this idea that Jesus had come to be, uh, to to bring, um, Jesus had come to the Jews to bring the kingdom to the Jews, and so Jesus had become a Jew to the Jews kind of idea, uh, and so the idea from incarnational circles in the eighties and nineties was well, just like Jesus became a Jew to bring the good news to the Jews, we should become a skater to bring the good news to skaters. So a lot of uh, youth ministries just built skate ramps in their halls and started hanging out with skaters. But the problem with that was that when you affirm a culture, there comes a time where you do need to confront that culture with the the problem of sin. So if you've been embracing the culture of uh, skating and grunge, then at some point you need to bring into that story the fact that we are all sinners and we need a saviour. And so early on I struggled with that incarnational model and I started thinking... Actually, if I'm evangelical and I'm bringing the good news, then preaching is a really important part of being an evangelical. And evangelism isn't just about trying to create a culturally relevant message and earning Mm -hmm. the right to be heard, but it's more about um, being in the culture with my generation, but then actually proclaiming the gospel. So what are some ways I could do that? And so early on uh, in my ministry... I was really struck actually that I got an invitation to go and do scripture at the local high school, Kirawee High School. And I remember walking up to Kirawee High School for the first time and I had a Bible in my hand and I was walking up to the school going up to sign in or whatever before I went to the room that I was supposed to teach in. And because we have voluntary scripture in, in uh, state schools in 
Sydney in Australia and we get the opportunity to come in and speak to people in schools which was terrific but as I was walking in I was kind of a bit nervous because I remembered in the 80s when people, scripture teachers used to come to Kirui High School they used to get completely trashed by many of the students and I was a bit nervous and I'm walking in and then I thought to myself Kurt Cobain gets up on stage and just says what he wants and sings what he wants he doesn't try and be the Spice Girls to get people to buy his records he just sings his message and I'm like I really believe in the word of God I really believe in my message and the interesting thing for me was that I thought grunge music wasn't just about the sound it was about the message and it was authentically coming from the grassroots in Seattle and it had spread around the world because it was so authentic and it had come from the grassroots and it meant something. And so I got really encouraged that actually Christianity has an even more powerful message than grunge music and I have the word of God and and this has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and as I share this message then this is a spiritual endeavour. It's not even just a cultural competition between, you know, who's, who's right wing and left wing and or whatever who's it is. Cool or, or who's not or cool. Who doesn't so, care. Or, yeah, so just like Kurt Cobain didn't care about looking cool or not going on stage and made that cool, I thought I'm just going to go in and be confident about this message and share this message with these young crew. And to my surprise, heaps and heaps of young people just went, wow, this is fantastic. We love this. This is really refreshing. And this is what we're looking for. We're looking for... What, we, what surprised a lot of young people is they weren't just looking for relationships with other people. They were actually looking for a relationship with with God. And and I think even though they didn't realise it, many uh, through the decade of the 90s, I was so surprised that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teenagers through the 90s became Christians. Um, and it was like a mini revival at one stage. We went from four kids to uh, 500 kids in about seven years coming to our youth group. And 80% of them were from non-Christian backgrounds. And... And I literally sat with hundreds of young people as they gave their life to Jesus during the, the 90s. And it wasn't because I'd earned the right to be heard. It's just I, I presented the simple message of the gospel in a way that they could understand. And it invited yeah. a response too, right? Invited a response. that's so something we've spoken about in, in the series as well. It is, yeah. And we have talked about it in other episodes. Mm. But we one of the young people in our group brought these Jesus beads to youth group one night on Solis on a Saturday night. Um I mean, don't get me wrong, we had, we had done some cultural things that would help young people to feel comfortable. For example, we realised that the architecture of our church just didn't have any lounge rooms, didn't have any place that encouraged people to sit around and talk and have a feed, whereas our generation wanted to do that. We didn't just want to go to an event. We wanted to be present with each other. Build so, a relationship. Yeah, really. so we just ended up asking some some member of the church if we could use their garage and yes. got some lounges off a of council cleanup, which is where people put their, their furniture out to be collected by council when they don't want it. And we got some of those lounges, let off a cockroach bomb in the in a, in a garage and we started meeting in a garage. Mm. And then we met in a disused church and so on and so on. But So we did do some things like that that were helpful. But at the, at the core of it was, you know, our young people come up with these Jesus beads, which was green, white, black. Red, yellow. Red, yellow. Yeah, thanks, Joel. <laughs> and um, these beads were just a really simple gospel, mm. biblical theology, actually, that we... We just used to tell the gospel by using those colours. And it just helped kids to go, oh, yeah, I kind of get that. That makes sense. And then having a conversation with them about that, yeah, it was a pretty exciting thing to see that just like grunge hit globally, Soul Revival hit locally in a way that we didn't expect. It was very exciting. And do you think that one of the reasons for that was because we we spoke about uh, the 90s generation looking for meaning. Is that yeah. because those guys were looking for meaning? I think that was part of it, yeah. I think the meaning we were offer, offering as Christian youth leaders in the 90s was 
very exciting for many young people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've seen yeah lots of people respond to Christ in a group, but also in a really meaningful way. Just young people one on one in a conversation, um, talking, and realizing that actually Jesus is real and he is alive and if he rose from the dead I can rise from the dead too and like I said the suicide rate in the Shire was going through the roof at the time so people were looking for hope and the gospel gave them hope yeah mm. that minister, that uh, suicide statistic always really hits me in the face so it really really saddens me mm. sometimes anyway yeah. sorry but um, I mean it's great that you were able to Cut through that and mm. and be able to speak to people in plain in, in a plain message of Jesus, which yeah. is what what the that evangelical line really marks out. It's like let's preach the good. Let's news. Get to the basics and preach, um, and that message of hope literally mm. saved some young people's lives. Like yeah. we were involved with actually literally saving two young uh, young women's lives who attempted suicide, but they reached out to us in the middle of that attempt, and we were able to. Um, get in touch with their parents and authorities, get in the hospital. Um, so there was a great deal of love and trust that was built up in a community that was centred on the message of Jesus. Mm, yeah, that's that's really lovely to hear. Um, one thing that I did want to just come back to you about, you talked about being, uh, we, we talk about that evangelical line, and what seems to be coming out often is, and I want to see what your, your thoughts are on this, that uh, we need to understand what's going on in the culture, but it's also the fact that evangelicals are willing to adjust and come up with new ways of ministering. Do you think that, like, we look over the, the course of history, do you think that is one of the a key marker of being an evangelical um, in comparison to, say, a fundamentalist who um, continues to go on, we need to have the fundamentals of the Bible, yes, which evangelicals agree with, but then also we need to keep what um, existed previously. Yeah, yeah I, look, I, I might be wrong on this, job, but my impression of fundamentalists is they want to maintain the cultural expression of the of the Christian witness that was of a previous generation, which is not always that necessary. And I don't think you have to compromise the gospel and values to do that. Uh, a good example of how we came up with new ideas was literally, um, I was originally working with a, a youth minister that was leading me, Andrew Callow. And Andrew had come up with this great idea of instead of just going up and doing scripture in the schoolroom or doing a lunchtime group at lunchtime in a schoolroom at the school, he approached the school to ask if he could run a breakfast. And he ran the breakfast at a science lab. I still remember going along and he invited me to come and we set up a toaster and just <laughs> cooked toast. And kids had come to this breakfast and we'd just sit around and talk. It was it was the early 90s and that's that you know that's that's how how it rolled now andrew was only around for a year and i used i got on with andrew really well he was a surfer he drove a combi van i thought he was terrific <laughs> and so that that was a lot of fun i actually bought his combi van after he did oh, leave yeah right. he, he wanted to sell his van when he left our church and i bought it and that was my first car that i bought for myself <laughs> so i've been driving combi vans for 30 years <laughs> since but um i'm only on my second one too so yeah anyway um but andrew you know, before he did leave Gomeringlick and he he set this 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 new idea up and, and, and I think what that did for me is it gave me a feeling that we could have permission to try new things. So before I'd even read Centre that said that, you know, young people come up with new ideas, Andrew was showing me that you can actually have a think about it and be creative and think of new ways of doing things. So he wasn't changing the Bible when he did the Bible study at that breakfast because he'd open the Bible and read the Bible. But just somehow having toast and Vegemite or peanut butter or honey, it was just really fun. It was just different and it's simple as. Mm -hmm. Now when Andrew left, um, I thought, oh, I'd like to do that at lunchtime. 
And I thought instead of doing it inside, maybe I might try and do it out on the playground where all the kids are. So again, I just approached the school and they, I said, could I do the lunchtime group and move it out onto the grass? And they said, yeah, sure, you can do that. And so there was a lot of freedom from the school to do that. And we would get a group of, say, 12 or 15 Christians out on the school grass. And because we didn't, we couldn't get a lead and get a toaster out onto <laughs> the grass, I thought, what else can I do? Oh, I might just buy some hot chips. And I didn't buy the hot chips to try and attract kids to come to it. It was more like, when Andrew would set up with the toaster and the bread. And it was just something to do while we're talking because it's a very human thing to have a meal together. And so we were having chips out on the grass for the first half of lunch and then I'd give a talk for the second half of lunch. Super simple. Now, some critics of that approach have, la- have labelled that bait and switch that we're trying to get kids for the chips. and then, But, but the, the, the teenagers weren't dumb. They knew we were Christians. They knew we were coming to teach the Bible. We weren't trying to trick them or anything. And they were really actually quite respectful they weren't coming over trying to you know get chips they were just saying i'm really interested to see what you guys are on about and we'd say oh do you want to have some chips and they go oh no no we're not part of the group we don't feel like we have a right to have chips and we're like you can share some if you want (laughs) but the good thing about being on the grass is young people could stand around on the outside and listen to what we were talking about without joining it and just have a think about it and slowly more and more by the end of the 90s we had probably 150 kids a week coming to that chip lunch we called it and then that started out in lots of other schools around the place but another thing we did is instead of just running a youth group on friday night because of our desire for a relationship we thought we're very influenced by matthew 22 37 to 40 and we thought there jesus says love god and love others and it really convicted us because we didn't really love others as much as we probably could we really loved jesus but even then we were sort of given jesus what was left over after we'd done all the other things that we want to do like part-time jobs study sport whatever it was but we thought wouldn't it be great if instead of running a youth group we were a peer group and so we bring the kids up into that peer group so i said to the group of youth leaders in the early 90s what if we start hanging out on saturday night not as another church event but just hang out as friends and then as the kids get older and they turn 18 or you know even younger they could say 17 or whatever they can come start hanging out with us on saturday night and so that too was a new idea and a lot of christians went oh that's you know wasting a lot of time at church but we thought well we're a peer group we're friends we're friends around jesus and we were really excited to read the bible and then just do stuff friends would do so we'd have a read of the bible at a cafe and then go see a movie or we'd have a read of the bible and order pizza or you know just do the things we'd normally do socially but we also had a read and we had a pray and we talked about being christian and it was really cool because one of the fun experiments was as young people young adults uh, we just decided not to drink on Saturday night so that mm-hmm. younger people could be a part of that and it was a really countercultural thing and it grew into a really popular thing and uh, that Saturday night hangout is now 30 years old young adults have been hanging out at Soul Revival for 30 years now and every Saturday night there's a group of young adults at Soul Revival that hang out with each other because they're mates and so that doesn't mean they're not a family as well they are but they're actually gathering as friends and I think that's very organic and what's really cool is even though Gen X uh, is now well I'm 53 now so I'm, I'm not young at all a young adult <laughs> at all now but I still see young adults who are of earlier generation younger generations than me still resonating with that expression of I love Jesus and because I love Jesus I'm going to love you as he loves you and so I'm committed to Jesus I'm, I'll be committed to you too and it's forming really beautiful friendships that 
um, in some cases being lifelong. Mm. And it feels like um, what you're saying there, it fits with the evangelical line of history. Is like they're the fundamental truth of the Bible mm. and we want to express that. But then you also seem to have understood what was going on in the culture and people were looking for the meaning of we need to we just need to be friends with each other and yeah. then, but then also the freedom of expressing those new ideas yeah. Yeah. in new ways that would fit at the time but then yeah. that doesn't mean we need to hit, stay, stick with those ideas for yeah. forevermore and and some people looked at what we were doing and thought it was incarnational because there was a whole bunch of surfers hanging out oh wow you've got a really good incarnational ministry to surfers and skaters mm. which we did we had a lot of grunge fans we had People, you come to Soul Revival and people playing Pantera and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all those different bands that we were playing. We'd have concerts and fun nights where we'd just go nuts and mosh. I think actually we were the first bunch of Christians in Sydney to mosh. There was a festival called Black Stump <laughs> and, and we all used to mosh at Soul Revival every week and we went along to this conference, Black Stump conference thing and they had a band play so we all moshed and to start off with they, everyone was like, what the, what the blazes is going on there? But... <laughs> Um, that was kind of fun but music styles change young people change and if you're in a relationship with other people you change with it I mean back when we were moshing and had um, you know a lot of punks come along and all that kind of stuff um, Michael Frost actually wrote an article about uh, incarnational ministry and in that article mentioned that Soul Revival was the best incarnational ministry that he'd seen but we all had a bit of a giggle at that because we didn't think we were incarnational not giggle at Michael at all but it was interesting that we were seen as incarnational when actually what we were doing is being very evangelical so I like to think that what we were doing was so focused around the Bible that we weren't trying to earn the right to be heard we were just preaching the gospel in our culture, which some people might come back at us and through the comments feel free to say that's incarnational. But a good example of the difference, I think, is there's a church down the road from Soul Revival that would have had probably a couple of hundred young people coming every week and had a skate ramp, but the majority of those young people weren't Christians. And as a result, the Christians really struggled to get a Christian culture to really impact those young people. In contrast, we'd have a couple of hundred young people come along to a concert uh, where we might have a Christian band come along and play. Um, but instead of just saying it was a concert, come along and then jump up with a message, we'd say we're a Christian community, Soul Revival. You all know us. We're around at the school. You've seen our Jesus beads. We're inviting you to come along to a night where we're going to have a band play. And if you want to come, you're super welcome. And um, halfway through, after the first set, I'd jump up on stage and I'd grab a Bible and I'd say, okay, we're going to have a read. And probably 15 to 20% of the group would all just sit down ready to have a, have a listen. Some of the young crew had even brought their Bibles with them. So all the non-Christian crew that were there would all look around and go, oh, I think the thing you do here is you sit down and you have a listen and people would have a listen. And then I could go on for 20, 30 minutes and people would be stoked. And then after we finished the talk, sometimes people become Christians. And it wasn't like a bait and switch where people had come for the concert and then been surprised by a message. It was more like, yeah, we know you guys are, are Christians and this is part of what you do in your community, in your friendship group. Mm. Just like we know that surfers go surfing together or skaters go sk skating together, Christians, they read the Bible together. Yeah. That's what Soul Revival became known for. Mm. And in terms of expressing the new ideas, uh, I mean, uh, we kind of looked at an international focus for the US uh, and what was happening around then. We looked at um, kind of the local, talking about Soul Revival, I was just kind of thinking about how we had Andy Stevenson on the podcast mm. uh, a few episodes ago, as you mentioned earlier, and he mentioned the youth ministry discussions. You, you, you've yeah. actually turned yeah. the youth ministry wars. Yeah, I did. What yeah. about a national level, or at least a, a New South Wales level? What mm. was what was going on there in terms of evangelism? 
Well, yeah. Well, I think I think again, if you think of those different categories, there are liberal Christians that are probably de-emphasizing doctrine in their evangelism. So they they're not wanting to offend people with Christian doctrine and form relationships. Uh, I'm being very broad here. You've probably got uh, charismatic ministries like Youth Alive, I think was one of them at the time. Um, Hillsong was big, where they'd have big concerts and kids would go to it. And that was very much focused, evangelism was very much focused on the music. And then within uh, mainline groups, there was a lot of discussion on how to do youth ministry and a lot of exploration. We were in the Anglican Church uh, in Sydney mainly, but it did impact a lot broader. In 19, the late 1980s, a book came out called No Guts, No Glory, and Ken Moser, Al Stewart, and Ed Vaughan wrote that book. And Ken Moser particularly became a real advocate for that book, and his his view was that the youth ministry models of the 1970s that had been prominent in the 80s kind of run out of steam. The idea of having a youth group on Friday night where you have 40 kids come along, hardly any of them come for the bible and then when you try and fit the bible in they don't listen he's he called it a dump truck approach it's almost like this church had this big dump truck full of teenagers back into the driveway at the beginning of the night dump all these kids out you know the youth leaders do games with them do a talk and then give them some cordial and biscuits and then the dump truck comes in and they all pile on and then they go again well ken's i don't want to do disjustice to ken's model but no guts no glory was kind of saying What's happening is those groups are set up for perceived needs of relationship rather than real needs of meeting Jesus through the word of God. And he said, if you've got guts, what you do is close down your Friday night group and start a Sunday afternoon Bible study. And you'll actually have most of the kids leave the church. And that's why you need guts to do it. But you'll have four or five kids that really love Jesus and really love the Bible. They'll come along. And instead of having a dump truck model or what used to be known as a funnel model where you get lots of people come into the youth group and then funnel down in the Bible study. He said, let's just go for a bead model of evangelism, which is those four kids are going to ask their friends one by one and you'll grow a big youth group that way. So that became a very strongly held model across Sydney with a lot of uh, evangelical Anglicans adopting that model and actually saying to other churches that have still got... um, games and stuff on a Friday night that actually that's not really the, the future of youth ministry real biblical ministry is this no guts no glory model so I think that set up a bit of a war because there were youth groups that either didn't know of this book and hadn't changed or groups that didn't want to change and you know I had friends that were still in that uh, zone of having a Friday night youth group and saying actually we do a lot of discipleship we do a lot of good bible so um Janelle Anglican, uh, Castle Hill Anglican were two churches that continued on with uh, that Friday night youth group approach. Uh, Cameron Hislop from Janelle and Tim Hawkins from Castle Hill were big uh, voices that were saying, actually, there are more than one way of doing youth ministry, not just this no guts, no glory. And that's what I think started a bit of a war because there was this big war of ideas. Uh, It wasn't always personal, but sometimes it did get a bit personal, but there was just this big discussion now a war is obviously a bad thing and you know a war but a war of ideas can actually be uh not not a violent process like it wasn't like it was a violent thing or aggressive it was more um people debating which view was right whether and, it's and you said it put youth ministry on the map would you agree with well that? yeah i think it did i mean it was 
it was actually a creative thing. That's where I suppose I'm, I'm struggling to find the words for it. But I think what I'm trying to say is there's a bit of creativity in people trying to argue for different points of view. And then and pushing the most. And pushing each you. other. Mm. Yeah. So it was a bit more, com- I don't want to use the word competitive, but it was an environment where people were thinking mm. and it was almost, there was like, oh, what are we going to do next? And that's why I mentioned that book by Mark Center because he said now that we're, he, he's, his book was called The New Revolution in Youth Ministry. He said that the 90s, I think quite accurately the 90s was going to be a time where there was going to be lots of different approaches and people were going to be really trying to search out what sort of approach works within a pluralistic culture so from the american point of view there were even approaches harking back to traditionalism and people were looking back to those kind of things there was incarnationalism there was music-led evangelism but yeah in sydney there was this big discussion around do you just do a Bible study, or is it okay to do some, commu- you know, you know, stuff on Friday night as well? So, Soul Revival was the beginning of, and because we were looking at being friends on Saturday night, that was the beginning of a intergenerational, like approach. youth ministry yeah. approach. Yeah, yeah. Before intergenerational, we hadn't heard about intergenerational before, but the way it happened for us is young adults were actually wanting to be friends in an appropriate way with younger people obviously with safe ministry standards around as well but we actually had a situation where for example we stopped drinking on a saturday night so young people who were underage could hang out with us you know appropriate ways and so uh yeah that led to teenagers and young adults starting to be friends with each other that then broadened and broadened and broadened so that was a third approach in sydney that was only just at one church it wasn't broad too much but then sooner or later men anglican church wanted to kind of ex- you know experiment with this community idea and so did Narrabeen Anglican Church and to this day I think Narrabeen Anglican Church is still called Solis because I think they got their name from when three of our churches were really good friends in the 90s uh so yeah so I think that one thing that I'm a bit worried about these days is there doesn't seem I, I mean I do appreciate what Andy was saying that you know one of the downsides of having different models of youth ministry is there can be a bit of argumentative um interaction can generate but i think youth ministry is more than just principles of youth ministry uh because i think that there are different models of doing things and those different models are responding to the change in culture and i think it's good for grassroots models to come up from the grassroots and for us to interact with each other and give young youth leaders today the opportunity to think oh how am i going to do what andrew Callot what what new Andrew Callow ideas are going to come up in this next generation where someone goes, I might just take a toaster up the school because that could become, I mean, it, in one sense it's a principle. It's like, you know, take your ministry to the school. But the, the reason I like ideas of models is it gives people an opportunity to create new approaches for the new cultural mm-hmm. environment. And exactly, I would, I, I mean, I would suggest that fits on that evangelical line, that mm-hmm. having those discussions and trying to come up with new ideas yep. while still remaining um, devoted to the, like, the clear principles and ideas of the gospel yeah. is that's where it needs to happen and that's yeah, what, I think that's so. what we're suggesting yeah i think so yeah, yeah. Okay. so so as we come to the end of the decade I, I think the 90s was was a different kind of cultural environment to what happens after 9-11 and i think it'd be really interesting to look at millennials and and how 9-11 changed evangelism but the freedom we had just to uh, share the gospel with others in the 90s was was a very exciting thing 
the different models that were being thrown around was very exciting as well. And I think if you talk to most of the youth ministers of that decade, they would have a great fondness for each other, even though they had disagreement with each other as well. Mm. And, it, and it also feels like you weren't uh, uh, submitting to the, the culture in terms of like trying to be the coolest. It was kind of like, let's, what's the best way for people to know about Jesus rather than... Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You weren't selling out. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that's a funny thought. I hadn't thought of that before, Joel, actually. Like, we didn't want to sell out the gospel. So yeah. our generation didn't want to sell out, and we didn't want to sell out the gospel. And we didn't want to sell it out to the to our culture or to our parents' culture. But we wanted to continue to try and find out what it was to be Christian. And we used to talk about being countercultural, and we used to think that was actually part of uh, that expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, nope, I think that's a really good way to, to wrap it up. So thank you very much. It's been another uh, very uh, learned piece of <laughs> piece of content that I <laughs> that I've, that I always like to participate in. Oh, so I, I, and and I think I just want to say, you know, your your thoughts about the American context was really helpful, Joel. Oh, that's good. Thank you very much. Um, so next week, uh, something that you, you've brought up that we need to look into is the emerging church and church planning and things mm. like that, which. Um, take us into the 2000s so we'll um, talk about that and also the ex-evangelical movement which is what Tim is really um, uh, interested in so we'll, we'll bring him on again next week mm. and discuss that having said that we'll finish up today um, if you are really interested in what we're talking about and have any thoughts about it you can definitely get in contact with me and we can put it on the podcast like we did with Andrew's questions like last week um, and a number of ways you can do that is by emailing me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au you can subscribe to our email newsletter which is on our website shockabsorber.com.au definitely subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet or on YouTube because you'll always get notified when we've released a new episode usually it comes out on Monday and uh, there is a discord link in the show notes where you can jump on the server and we can continue chatting as well but uh, once again thank you very much for listening and or watching us thanks for the skateboard Stu it's very very fun and thanks for being on the podcast one, one way, way.